Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Hey, it's the Hunting Collective. Welcome. Uh, We're on episode number 68. It's a good one today. I'm pretty excited about this one. We've got an interview segment of the show. We've got Tyler Sharp, the editor-in-chief of a magazine, a really well-done and thoughtful magazine called Modern Huntsman, in that we've got a lion attack story, some other crazy Africa stories from Tyler. And we went pretty deep on redefining the narrative of hunting, which is one of the missions of Modern Huntsman. But before we do that, we had our new editor-in-chief, Anthony Licata, on to talk about exactly that. Do we need to redefine the hunting narrative? Who gets to do that? How do we communicate that? It's a little bit of a complicated topic, but it is a good thing to uh, aspire to. But it's a complicated thing to communicate, so we're going to cover that. We also started talking about not only hunting dick moves, but office dick moves. And our, our engineer, Phil, gave a couple of really good ones. Uh, so you're going to want to stick around for that. Um, but before we get to all of that, First Light has a really cool new film out called Ursus, Idaho. Uh, it's a spot and stalk spring bear hunt. It's a really cool film. I just got done watching it. It's First Light's Paul Peterson. He drew one of the most coveted spring black bear tags in the lower 48. And Paul, is, he's a former elk guide. Um, and as a Wisconsin native, is his first bear hunt and it's pretty damn entertaining so go to firstlight.com and watch that film ursus idaho with paul peterson it's pretty cool i like it i think you will too so without further ado we're going to get to episode number 68 let's go I guess I grew up on an older road A pedal to the metal Always did what I told Until I found out that my brand new clothes I came second hand from the rich kids next door And I grew up fast I guess I grew up mean There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen And now I just wander through a real bad dream Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams But thank you Jack Daniels Oh, number seven Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Hunting Collective. I, of course, am Ben O'Brien, and you're going to be here in this podcast on July 2nd. We're in July, Licata. Feels like it. Yeah. Sunny, warm. It's Montana. 
Welcome to Montana, by the way. Thank you. You're moving here like the rest of us meat eaters. I am. I'm moving here in uh, about a month, so I can't wait. Yeah, you have some uh, young children that are excited to explore all that Montana has to offer. Absolutely. Took my uh, kids out fishing this weekend. They came for a visit, check out the new hometown, and um, yeah, I I just want to get here uh, while yeah. while there's still lots to do. They're very much. Till the smoke comes in August. Now, we're not supposed to, people tell me I'm not supposed to talk so glowingly about Bozeman all the time. So, it's also very cold in the winter. Uh, it snowed two days yeah. before I got here earlier yep. this week. So, keep yep. that in mind. Yeah, I got pulled over by a, a cop two months ago. So, it's, you know, there's some bad things <laughs> in Bozeman as well. So, I just try to try to uh, make sure everybody understands. It can be a terrible place. It's awful. It's awful. Don't come. You know, like the ski resorts are crowded. Yellowstone, there's just buffalo everywhere in the road <laughs> even sometimes. How do you even drive through? You can't even drive through these buffalo. It's terrible. Hey, Phil. Phil's back. I'm back. How much hate mail did you get? No no hate mail, Phil. None? Um, no, that's good. I was wondering if you got recognized anywhere, your voice. You know, yeah. I think I was just telling you beforehand, I was I was grocery shopping and... Um, you know, I, I just I I asked the cashier. Well, I told her I'd like some. I'd like I'd like plastic bags. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Oh, hold on a minute." The hunting collective. Yep. Yep. Of course she did. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, "You know it." I tried. You know it, lady. <laughs> I'm Phil. It's Mr. Taylor to you. All right. Perfect. Well, that means you can stay on the show. Awesome. Great. <laughs> uh, that's it for you for today. Thanks for joining us. Cool. I'll see you later. Phil. Um, we're going to talk about. Some, well, I, I would call them some heavy topics as we always try to do here on the show. Um, but I'm trying to figure out, I was trying to figure out a thing we would do. It's the off season. There's no hunting going on. So we can't tell hunting stories. So it leaves a lot of dead air. Absolutely. Can't tell fishing stories. They're boring. We'd just be like, we were fishing and then we caught a fish. That pretty much (laughs) that. It's pretty much the whole story. So we can't tell fishing stories. But I'm trying to figure out like a, a thing that I can do, like top bullets, top hunters of all time. To get everybody interested in debating about things. But I, I'm not, it's been a long week and I have no idea. I was going to plan something, but I don't have anything. Yeah. Did you come up with anything, Lakata? <laughs> In the uh, no four pressure. minutes since you um, asked me to think about it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, right? It's, uh, this is the kind of thing that's real hard to rank, but it's fun, right? It's fun to think about that stuff. I mean, uh, that's part of the fun of arguing about it. I mean, yeah. I have my like top stuff. I mean, I think. Top things I love to do, whether they're what you love to do, I don't really care. They're my yeah. top things. I think they're the best. Oh, that's what he said. <laughs> top reasons why my things are better than your yeah, things. Yeah, right. Uh, maybe top podcasts. <laughs> I can think of five really good ones. Yeah. <laughs> they're, all, they're all on the Meat Eater Network. It's weird that they're all yeah. the best. Uh, it's funny. So anybody, write in to THC at TheMeatEater.com and help me out. I'm trying to come up with some real catchy things, to ways to rank and debate about pretty inane topics over the summer when we're bored. So please write in and give us some ideas. Uh, I was going to have, I was going to whip out some real cool thing, but I just, I couldn't think of anything. So I well, apologize. when you are stumped, that's the thing. Make your audience do the work for you. Ben. That's right. That's, exactly. that's the way to do it. It's called being resourceful people. And this is a <laughs> weekly show. Sometimes I get tired. Okay. So thank you. THD at the media.com. Please, please. Um, we're going to get, we're going to start this, Conversation off. We have an interview in the interview portion of the show. We have Tyler Sharp, who is the uh, well dressed editor in chief of Modern Huntsman. Modern Huntsman is a 
uh, a glossy, you know, wonderfully put together uh, hunting magazine, which I believe is in its third volume. Uh, and that volume is on wildlife management. It should be out by now. You should be able to go pick it up. What makes it interesting is that its stated mission is to redefine the hunting narrative. Now, boy, that's a that's a tall task. Yeah. Why not set your sights high, I say? Yeah, big ambition. Big ambition. I once maybe thought that I could be the one since I've, I've thought better of it. Try to be funnier maybe to fill the holes. <laughs> so... We're going we're gonna to get into that, but we had a gentleman write in, and all these people that write in have um, hard-to-pronounce last names, so that upsets me. But this fellow's name is Andy D. Rousseau. Sorry if I mispronounced that, Andy. But he wrote in. He said, you asked for some feedback, and here I am giving it to you. I hope you, Ben, will continue to interview people from the industry, even in different views from yourself and your style. Folks like Michael Waddell, Ted Nugent, Chuck Adams, Fred Eichler, so on and so forth. I've had Fred Eichler on, so go back and listen to that one. But the other ones would be interesting. More of these stories and these amazing people that have different perspectives and different ways of looking at hunting in the industry would be interesting. And Andy's from Rogers, Arkansas. Um, Yeah, man, I'm into that idea. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's all about. I mean, different perspectives. That's one of the cool things about what we do, um, the way – I do it and was raised to do it and do it where I'm from is different from uh, someone else's experience. That's right. And that's what, that's why I named this thing the hunting collective. Cause I was like, well, if we get, if we can somehow learn the collective perspectives and understand different parts of our community, why people think the way they do and why they act the way they do and, and why they value what they value, then maybe we can be better at thinking about hunting and, and analyzing the way we do things. So thank you for writing in Andy. And that's a good bridge to, the topic of of modern huntsmen and the the stated purpose of redefining the hunting narrative. And at first, we could just say, Lakata, do you feel like we need to redefine the hunting narrative? I'm not even sure what that means exactly. Um, yeah. You know, w- is there a hunting narrative that we all agree on? Um, you know, it, it, does that mean really what we do or or how we explain it to people? I'm not quite sure what what that means. Yeah, and and Tyler explains it. Um, from his perspective, and he explains it well. But I think that from his perspective, the narrative is the narrative that's being imposed on our community rather than the narrative that we've created, right? Right. So the narrative being imposed on our community has to do with trophy hunting. It has to do um, with murdering animals, like the negative um, stereotypical things that are applied to hunting. That's what he's talking about. That's redefining that narrative, but also redefining what hunting means inside the community and kind of shining the spotlight around and seeing what's there, right? Seeing, right. oh, oh, what's over there? There's a guy doing something that I don't like, uh, personally don't like and don't don't respect. Is it my job to call that person out or is it my job to, to do what I think is right and, and show by example? So we, we run into, I've run into this, I'm sure you have in your career. Mm-hmm. You kind of run into Steve's analogy Ronella's analogy, which is shooting holes in the boat. If somebody's in, the, you're in the boat with somebody and they're shooting holes in it, you're certainly going to make them walk the plank at some yeah. level. So you have that analogy. But the other analogy is what makes you the judge and jury? What makes you the person to raise your hand up and say, I'm right or I'm wrong or this is right or this is wrong? How, how do we do that? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, um, 
I think it's obvious, right? I think the, the shooting holes in the boat is a very clear, uh, very smart way to think about it, right? But it does get a little bit tricky when there's some things that there are people who are never going to like the hunting narrative. No matter what we do, we could do it in a way that, um, you know, we think is, is the, the best possible narrative for us. People are still going to hate it. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't, you know, care about that narrative. We do. We all know that hunters are a, a very small minority in this country, and we need the public to, if not support us, at least respect it and mm-hmm. let us do our thing. Um, you know, so that that's... Yeah. It's embodied. We just had the super top secret content project that we did yesterday. And it's embodied in the conversation around, like, where do we limit or how do we limit our communication? And who can tell, who is the one to be able to say, like, don't do that. Yeah. And can we, like, you know, I'm not a big grip and grin guy anymore. I was at one time. I am not now. Um, and I've said my piece on why I think that's that needs to be the way. But the, I think that argument just kind of embodies this conversation. Yeah, that's right. It, it's it's a pretty tall order to, to for for someone or a small group of people to say, hey, this this yeah. is what the hunting narrative should be. This is what it should look like to the outside world. Um, as we said, as you said earlier, it's it's the hunting collective, right? We all come from different backgrounds, and um, shooting holes in the boat should be pretty obvious. But there's some things that, hey, it might not be my thing, but um, if it's done in a way that um, is respectful to the resource, um, uh, is good for the environment, you know, kind of embodies what hunting's all about, even if it's not my thing. Um, you know, I don't know. Do we need to worry about what someone else thinks about that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's a generational, you know, Tyler and I are about the same age, mid thirties guys. Like it might just be a generational thing. We feel the pressure as, you know, as folks whose parents didn't have that same pressure, you know, my dad didn't have the pressure of social media and the pressure of like, how are people going to take in this image that I've shared or this? He didn't. I right. mean, there was the brag board at the local gas station and the back of his truck when he checked the deer in and then whoever right. saw it in the garage before they cut it up and ate it. So there just wasn't that pressure to continually think about how we speak about hunting or what we do. And it can be a nod. I don't want to beat people over the head with these ideas, but man, when somebody like Tyler comes along and you'll hear in a minute, he says some things that, um, even for my taste was like, whoa, all right, cool. I'm good. Like, that's pretty blunt mm. that, you know, to make an analogy of like, you know, sometimes when you get old, you should stay on the porch and let somebody else figure out how to go forward. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's it, people, I know people will get prickly about that when I, when I heard him say it, I'm like, I know Tyler, I know him to be a good dude. So I'm like, oh, he, you know, he's making his point. He's making it pretty firmly. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a pretty tough thing to to say to people, uh, you know, who have been there before you, have been mm-hmm. doing this a long time, who have, um, in one way or another, advanced hunting and been the backbone of it to tell them, well, your time has passed the way you did it. You should just stay on the porch, man. I don't know. I don't yeah. have, I don't have the um, personal feelings. I feel like I could tell anybody that. Yeah, in the mission statement for for. For Modern Huntsman, it says, it's born out of frustration with the way hunting is often misrepresented today. This publication is told from the perspective of hunting purists and the, and the diplomatically minded, unaltered by the skews of mainstream media, corporate interests, or misinformed emotional rants. I mean, that, yeah. What's your reaction to that? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, big ambition. For That's sure. big ambition. It, it's know. you know, look without knowing. Um, that kind of sets you up to like you. You better have good arguments for for everything you're saying and what's right and what's wrong. I myself like, you know, I'm I'm pretty clear about what is good for hunting and what isn't, and doing things in an ethical, fair chase way, and and always putting the resource first. You know, but when I think about things that how hunting is portrayed, um, or if it looks bad to the outside. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable making that call for someone. I mean, if, if somebody's doing it the right way and someone takes it the wrong way, I, I'm not sure that I want to tell them not to do it. You know, yeah. my, my kids' preschool, they have this uh, – <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm talking about my kids' preschool, right? <laughs> no, so I, like, I, I like it. Where's he going now? This is, uh, this is where I get all my knowledge, right? But they have this thing where they say, don't yuck someone else's yum, right? Some kid pulls out their lunch and oh. some other kid's like, ew, yeah, that's gross. And – you know, the kid's eating it and he likes it. And I feel like that's kind of a, a way I look at things. There's some things in, in hunting that aren't my cup of tea. I don't like to do them, but they are good. You know, they don't do anything bad. They don't shoot any holes in the boat. And if it's something that gets people outside and that they enjoy doing, even if it's not my thing, I'm not going to yuck their yum. Yeah. I mean, you're going to, I like that. Hashtag yuck my yum. <laughs> I hope that's not, <laughs> I hope that's not a hashtag yet. <laughs> No, I like that, and I don't like. I struggle with that all the time. I like as a person, I'm not. I don't get in people's business. Yeah, like, I don't right. want to get in somebody's business and tell them how to better do the thing that they're doing. I'll be like, trust that they've thought it through and either will or won't. Right. Find a better way to communicate if that's I'm, the goal. I mean, I think it starts. It starts with yourself, right? And I, I think maybe that that's what they're trying to do mm-hmm. with modern huntsmen, right? And that's great. And if you're going to be the example of how you think. Um, the hunting narrative should be to the outside world, great. But you do that by being an example and not necessarily by pushing other people back up onto the porch or whatever. You, you kind of lead the way. Yeah. Right. Like I said, I mean, I don't, this isn't, this is in no way downing. I like you'll, and you'll hear in the interview, I think the Modern Huntsman magazine is fantastic. Yeah. I, I do too. I think it's very good. It is so, fantastic and well done, well written, well photographed, well designed. It is, it is well done. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really great. And I, I have nothing wrong. I have no problem with that ambition, right? Yeah, yeah. To do better. So we're always trying to do better and we should, as a community, try to do better. Yeah. It's just like, how do you, the, the, the question, and this could be seen as kind of frivolous, but the question is like, how do you express that? feeling like dude i see some shit i don't like i see some things i'm not real into i think they're shooting holes in the boat what what is my role in fixing that you know and so i think we all just take on different versions of that yeah the way i try to take it on is as i said kind of lead by example i'm going to do it my way um i'm going to tell people this is why i do it and this is how i do it uh i'm going to try to Try to change the narrative that way, and if that's how they're doing it, I think that's that's the right approach. Yeah, and my my thing for sure is um, just starting the conversation. Yeah, if right. I don't like something, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna run right over to it. I'm gonna stand there and be like, "Who can I have a conversation with about this thing?" And I'm gonna ask some tough questions. I'll probably um, my opinion will probably change over that time. But the best way that I can think of to un- both understand a perspective of somebody you don't agree with and think might be shooting holes in the boat. But also to, you know, to to make sure that there aren't any holes in your boat is to go over there and be like, what, what are you doing with that gun? <laughs> Why is it pointed toward the hole? <laughs> I'm going to shoot it in the right. air. 
Um, well, just questioning, like, what's the motivation here? Why is it good? And I and and then I think the next episode of the podcast or a future episode will have a vegan philosopher on. That's going to be fun for everybody, hopefully. <laughs> um, and he asked me about trophy hunting, and I just said, "Look, it's complicated." He's like, "Well, are you willing to say that all trophy hunting is bad?" I'm like, "Boy, no, no way. It's complicated. Right. Like that. Am I?" Am I against all a holes? Yeah, right. Because he because he's just applying. All he was doing was applying the word trophy hunting to somebody that he didn't like. Right. So if you would say Ben, are you against all campers that litter? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But that right. has nothing to do with the overall like acceptance of camping or putting a tent up somewhere and s- sitting out and roasting a hot dog. So like, yeah, I'm. If somebody just wants to cut the head off a deer and take it home, am I against? That? Yeah. For all sure. day long, I'm you against bet. that. But the other point I made to him was why it's even more complicated is because our system of game laws and our pretty much sets it up so that even if the guy is an asshole, he is still doing good for the resource. Yeah, that's He can't true. help it. Right. Even if he's an a-hole. Right. Even if he's – all he wants to do is shoot a deer, cut its head off, take it home, show it to his friends, throw it in the garbage. He's paid into a system that are going to make sure more deer are around. So we also have that to fall back on because we, we, we can't just kick out everybody we think might be – you know, that guy. Absolutely. I mean, trophy hunting, we, we shouldn't even get into that because it's so complicated, right? What does that mean? Because I, I like to kill big deer and yeah. I have some some nice European mounts on the wall that makes me uh, a trophy hunter to this guy. That's Probably, true. but he, I also feed all my family on venison and um, also feed um, some a good friend of mine's a vegetarian who mm-hmm. only eats the meat I kill. So I don't know if that's technically a vegetarian or not, but... Yeah. Um, you know, venison diplomacy is, as Ronella says, but, um, you know, to, to make that call is, is, is pretty tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's how do you do that? What's it mean? This goes well into an article that ran on the And this is way more insular, but it still has a lot to do with how do you call people out? It's called, it's written by one Stephen Ronella. It's called the biggest dick moves a hunter can make. Mm-hmm. You should go read that over the meter.com. If you have a quick five minutes, it's a quick one. But he's got some examples here. Spot stealing. I mean, that's pretty yeah, obvious. Sure. Yeah, spot, Don't expo- do it. spot exposing, which I do on this podcast all the time. <laughs> that's why I take a little bit of <laughs> We have a segment called Hot Spot Cool Dude or Gal, depending on who's on the podcast, where I ask people to expose their spots. And it's selfish. I like is that. Is that a dick move? Or are you um, bringing more people into the sport and giving Bam. them more opportunity? Dude, that was deep. That's exactly right. what we're talking about. It's just how you look at That's it. That's how you look I'm at it. I'm trying to be democratic. Right. Or, Some are, people are mad at me because I'm giving their spots away. Right. Oh, Don't uh, be selfish. Uh, yeah. Am I going to be selfish and keep this spot to myself? Or if I, I, I know someone who's trying to get into hunting yeah. or, or needs to get out and has nowhere to go and I tell them where to go, um, you know? Yeah. This is what the point of podcast where I would like to bring Phil in. Phil, what do you think? <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm I'm not much of a, a hunting, you know, philosopher. We know that, like the Phil. People we know. You, okay, great. <laughs> I've, already set an, I've already set a but precedent say something, for myself. <laughs> your job is to say something profound. Okay, great. Uh, you hired the right guy. Anybody um, can be a hunting philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. I, I I mean, you you just said what Anthony said was profound. Does it bring more people in and give them more opportunities? I, from where I stand, which is very far away from this, I'd say mm-hmm. that that's a good point of view. Okay, right? good. Thanks, Phil. Thanks. Uh, I'll See? check back in with you a little bit later. Cool. <laughs> Appreciate that. We're going to continue. <laughs> Phil's getting abused. <laughs> I love you, Phil. Thanks, man. Uh, not cleaning game. 
is one of Steve's dick moves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm going to change the title of this to Steve's obvious dick moves. <laughs> that no one should ever even do. Sleeping in? Another one. Oh, like, yeah. That's like... Sleeping in? Yeah. Yes. No. I think he maybe... Is he arguing for sleeping in? No. No. Except no. I will say... Um, I know Steve's t- talked about this. I've heard it. Um, I don't sleep in when I tricky hunt because I feel like I want to be there mm. at... You know, before dawn, obviously, oh, yeah. when the you first hear the birds off the roof, off, off the roost. But um, there was sometimes uh, a couple of years ago where I could not hunt first thing in the morning. So some things I had going on, and I killed more turkeys <laughs> when I started going at nine a.m. This is the truth. The truth <laughs> about that is most turkeys are not getting killed off the roost. Like you, I've killed a few, but I've killed the bulk of them at nine o'clock after they've gotten off the roost, got settled where they want to be, and then I can make a play or whatever. But yeah. Yeah, hunting them off the roost is a get is a gamble, but it is cool to see a bird it in a tree cool. and just like I'll just get up under. The, yeah. I know he's gonna fly over there, and I'm not gonna kill him, but it's cool to hear him in the tree goblin. And you know, you can't sleep in as a hunter. No, that's the only thing I can really get up for. Yeah. To be honest with you, I have a hard. Yeah, I'm one of the, like. No, hit, if you're like, this, hey, four a.m. Oh, there's a soccer game on in right. London. I'm like, nope, yeah, not, I, not gonna. I'm a hit the snooze button kind of guy, except when it comes to hunting and fishing. Yes, I don't know. There's a couple other ones here. I I know I got one. Which is just saying, like, I got this. I got this bird when you know you probably don't have it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes Over. you got to throw a guy a bone when he's having a bad day. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got him. He's missed a especially bunch of birds. Du- especially he's... in duck hunting when, yeah. like, when two or three birds fall and, and he's like, I, got, I think I got one of those. Like, yeah, bro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah man. Good job. It's a little pat on the back for guys, guys you, struggling a little bit. You did it. Good <laughs> for you. See, that's a non dick move by us. Uh, brand new boots. Yeah, yeah, hmm And then complaining with no action, which we've kind of covered here um, a little bit. But those are all dick moves. Do you have any other uh, dick moves? Um, yeah. I think it's kind of a dick move when you just brag, mm-hmm. right? When you're, when you're bragging about what you did. Look, man, you have a great hunt, whether that means you killed a big deer or – really got back in there and got it done, that's good for you and you should be happy about mm-hmm. it. But there's, I don't know how to put it in words, but you know you know it when you see oh, it. When the, the guy is just Are you like, talking about like one-upping? Yes, if I'm like, you right, know, when I was, right. you know, I was sheep hunting in the Northwest Territories, <laughs> I remember when I was in Nepal. <laughs> right. It was hard. Yeah, <laughs> like, see, you brought it up. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. I, I am... I can't. I can't help it. I'm so. Uh-huh. I'm so great. <laughs> you are a dick. <laughs> yeah. I think I am. I think after recording myself for a year and a half, I just realized that um, I'm a dick. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you're talking to a guy, no matter what you say, like, ah, oh, you know, my dad and I, we love to go pheasant hunting. Yep, yep, I pheasant hunt. Yep, I yeah. kill, I kill my limit every time I go. Hey, no, I, listen, this is my biggest dick move that I that bugs me is when somebody, whether it's a kid or a grown man or woman. Kills a, a buck, and someone says to that person, boy, he would have been something else in another two years. <laughs> Get yeah, lost, man. Buddy. You know, listen, I respect the idea of, you know, hunting mature animals and proper wildlife management. and But that's an evolution that I think um, a lot of hunters have to go through on their own. And even if you never go through it, that's all right. You know, my, my father... Um, he, he gets out not as uh, much as he used to, and, I mean, 
he's going to kill a small buck and I'm somebody's going to be like, oh boy, dad, that one would have been great next year. No, man, he he's out there. He had a great time. Like when you say that to people, I just think oh, yeah. it, it, you're, you're taking a, a moment that was meaningful to them and you're kind of, you know, crapping on it. Being a dick. Yep. That's what you're doing. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's see if I can think of one. Um, that's what. That's a really good one, though. That may be the biggest. And then there's another one where like a guy might be watching a TV show, and a and a child might kill a giant animal, and the first thing is like, Psh, whatever, only because they're rich. Yeah, because right. their dad has money. They right. don't deserve that. Like, right. What do you mean? Right. You weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> right. That person, you know. If my dad was rich and he took me running around the world to kill stuff, I would have loved it. Yeah. Bring the criticism on all day. That's just jealousy, pure yeah. and simple. It's like just pure jealousy. I can't, whoa, that, that little kid didn't earn that kudu. Yeah. Well, what little kid earns a kudu? No. Yeah. yeah like, right. You but know. they're they're lucky to have a dad that would take him to do that, if you think. Dude, I, if, I, think if I could do that with my kid. I mean, I took my kid to Alaska two years ago fishing. That's awesome. I mean, how you dare, know, How dare How you? dare I? Like, and you just you, gave your spot away, by the way. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> don't go to Alaska. Yeah, don't. There's bugs. <laughs> Phil, you have any uh any dick moves? And just you could go since you're not a hunter, just in general, like things people do around the office, maybe. Maybe uh, office. That's a good maybe that's oh, a good man. office dick move. So let's get that going. Uh yeah. Well someone just left a bunch of pickle barrel sandwiches in the fridge. Pickle barrel is a local sandwich shop. Mm, very, shout out. We very get sponsored tasty. By them, yeah, there you maybe. go. Very tasty, notoriously smelly. Very the the onions are heavy, mm. and they just left them in the fridge uncovered, and then the fridge smelled like onions. like like onions. Very very you know, but that was a light one. Uh, Phil, light, light dick move. Yeah, I, I got. I have to fess up. Uh, one of those Whoa. sandwiches was was mine. <laughs> <laughs> they also they're yeah. big sandwiches. They're big. I could they're only have. They are smelly. Did you and put I was them in like, there? Did you put them in uncovered? No, I did even something even worse. I left my half eaten sandwich on the conference table and oh. left, and someone else put it in the fridge. Oh, so yeah, that's, that's a pretty dick move. Yeah. Well, I had another meeting. I'm uh, sorry. Jesus. <laughs> Listen, I said it was a light dick move. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was me. Okay, I'll take ownership for that. This okay. is, let's keep going. Let's see if we can find any other things Anthony's done. <laughs> I will say I did one yesterday. We were filming a thing, and you know they have the lights on you, and it's all they want you to look good. And then they gave we ate lunch, and then we continued filming. They gave us floss to make sure we didn't have anything in our teeth for the filming. And I did the floss, and then I set it down on the table, and I walked away. Oh. oh. Did you clip your toenails too? That's yeah. nasty. Yeah, yeah. So, and then Renella goes, did you just leave your floss on the table? I was like, nope. And I put it in my pocket and I walked away. I was like, nope, wasn't me. <laughs> I slowly shuffled away in shame. Uh, any other uh, office? You guys, you both are relatively new to the office. Relatively new. Well, this so. guy keeps uh, having me on his podcast and tries to get me to sound smart, and it's impossible. <laughs> You're going to be a hunting philosopher by the time your time we'll is here. Still. Okay. We'll sounds, get you there. Sounds yeah, good. I, I was thinking that that was an obvious one. You, this guy keeps putting me on his podcast and try to puts me in tough spots. Yeah. It's, a, it's really rough. Yeah. What other office? I like this topic. Other <laughs> office. We're going to probably cut out Tyler's inner. Sorry, Tyler. We're going to put you in a different. We're going to do another hour and a half just on office. What's the other, you know, other office dick moves? People's dogs sometimes yeah. are just not. We have a dog friendly office. Yeah. And there's some people who know, you know who you are. If you're thinking, is he talking about me? I'm probably talking about you. 
Your dog is annoying. Uh, are you talking about the meeting we had earlier today where <laughs> someone was right in the middle of a really important point and the dog, the dog comes under the table biting, <laughs> biting her wrist yeah, dog repeatedly? Was, yeah, dog and was she's just, trying to carry on with her point and I pretend didn't it wasn't you, happening? I don't want to tell you guys, but during the whole meeting, that same dog was licking my toes. <laughs> And I was like, "What do I?" I was like, "No, I'm kind of, I'm not, I'm not hating it. I'm into it a little bit." Uh, so yeah, there's that. That's one. The dog thing. The food thing is tough because we cook a lot of weird stuff. We cooked crow. We cooked mm-hmm. mountain lion. We're cooking bear today, and so it's a tough one. The smell. Yeah. Because our desks, Anthony, are like right, mm. right in the danger zone for the. If a guy was to burn the meat, you know. Well, I I uh, used to work in New York City, and one of my favorite cheap lunches was street meat. You know, call it yeah. street meat, right? Big plate of like um, Middle Eastern food with rice and yeah. onions. It was delicious. But man, everybody now would be like, "Hey, got some street meat today? Did you? It's coming out of your pores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming out of your pores. Yeah. Um. All right, Phil, give us one more office uh, dick move. Uh, well, I I was just thinking about the uh, the street meat because I can I can relate to that. <laughs> I got I, I I've only been to New York twice, but one time my one of my friends like we, we're going to halal guys yep. at two a.m. or whatever time right. it was. He, he ordered for me because I had no idea, and yeah, I I couldn't get it out of my skin yeah. for about a week. Yeah, it's it was, it's rough the next morning. It was morning. really rough. Oh, oh yeah, when you're eating it at two a.m., it's rough. It's rough. It's, it's like sad. Rough. You're like oh yeah that. Uh, I'm not sure this is an office dick move, but you brought it up by talking about the dog licking your feet. This is a flip-flop friendly office, man. Everybody has flip-flops it, on. And like slipping them off and some bare feet. Yeah, I did put I'm my, just saying. I did put my, we have, we have a, a mega desk, you and I. And I did take my flip-flops off and put my feet on my desk. Was that today? Maybe yesterday. No, I didn't see that, thank you. Oh, you weren't there. No. <laughs> I did it strategically when you weren't there. But I, I mean, I was actually chided by my coworkers for not wearing flip-flops soon enough. Well, dude, I came or, uh, two days ago, and I'm wearing my Blountstone boots that I wear all the time. I saw more than one person look at my feet in judgment, being mm-hmm. like, dude's not wearing flip-flops. It's like 60 degrees out. He should have flip-flops oh, the, on. The people in Montana are so excited when the sun comes out. They're just like shirtless. I was like, it's 48 <laughs> degrees. Calm down. Why aren't you wearing shorts, bro? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, that's not what we do. So, yeah, there's a lot of judgments. Um, we've gone off the rails. Yeah, we have. Which I really like. But I'm trying to change the narrative of, oh. <laughs> uh, of the mediator office. That's really what <laughs> I'm trying to, change, to do here. Redefine. So you're trying to redefine the mediator office narrative. What's the current narrative? <laughs> <laughs> flip-flops and dogs. A bunch of flip-flops and dogs. Which there's only a few I, – I there's only a few ways that I could tell the story about the dog licking my toes in the office. Because there's a not a lot of people here. Maybe you're listening to this in your office. Have you ever had a dog lick your toes during a meeting? When, <laughs> no. When you're giving like some real important monologue about content, and then there's like a dog just down there, it's going to town. And then I'm thinking it's distracting me because I'm thinking, why is he licking my toes? What is on my toes? <laughs> I took a shower. What's on my toes that shouldn't be there? See, yeah, man, wear shoes. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to leave you guys with that that thought. What was on my toes? Write in and let us know. Write in and let us know what you think. Top five things that you think might have been on my toes. We're really going way off track. Um, All right. Well, we're going to get to the interview portion of the show. All right. That is one of the best segments we've ever done. Uh, We're going to get to Tyler Sharp, and we're going to go. He lives down in Livingston, Montana. I went over to his house. We had a really good 
conversation about what he does, um, what he wants to do and his goals within the industry, and then some of his pretty cool stories from his time traveling with the likes of Jim Shockey and others, um, filming and experiencing a lot of things, and, and a, a couple of uh, a lion attack story. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's yeah, cool. We cool. got that going. So uh, we're going to transport ourselves in time to Livingston, Montana, where we talk to Tyler Sharp, the editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman. Enjoy. <laughs> I guess I grew up on an older road. Tyler Sharp, what's up, man? Not much, just enjoying a Topo Chico over yeah. here in the Shields Valley. Hey, maybe they would have sponsored the podcast, you think? I would hope so, because it needs a larger presence in Montana, yeah. I think. Topo Chico. Now, I just came from Texas. I lived there for some time and did enjoy it. And you are a dual resident of Texas and Montana, which I feel is that's a pretty good combination. It is. To have those two things. Trying to maintain that. Trying to be a fair weather resident in both places so lay that out do you go down there during the winter time and come up here during the summertime because if you do uh, screw you because that's awesome <laughs> i was here this winter mm. which was you know pretty cold especially out here um but the idea yeah would be summer here fall here and then maybe like you know december through february or march in texas come back for spring here um Finding that balance, but uh, that's a fine that's a fine balance. Yeah. I often tell people that if I could take the best of those two worlds, I would take it every day. Yeah, and I used to. I this winter in Montana wasn't so bad. Probably out here, you're out here in the in the middle of nowhere on a beautiful ranch. I'm sure it was a little tougher out here than it was. It, it wasn't bad until February, and then there was a period of three weeks where it was 15 below, and we got three feet of snow. <laughs> And so that that started to grind on me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I went snowboarding and tried to snowshoe and hike. But when you go outside and your breath immediately freezes, you're like, yeah, that, I'm not going to go for a run today. <laughs> and you're, uh, where are you born? Tell people your kind of your, where you're sure. born and how you got to where sure. you are today. Long um, story, I'm sure. But So little known secret, and I hesitate to even tell well, the public too. at large, this. <laughs> I was actually born in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, when I was two, we moved to Austin. So grew up in Austin, and then we moved to Grapevine, which is in between Dallas and yep. Fort Worth. Went to school there, uh, and then I, I went to college at USC in Los Angeles. Studied film and photography, uh, as well as psychology and Italian, randomly. <laughs> and then my first job was in Tanzania. So I moved to Africa and worked for a safari company and, and filmed and photographed hunts for six months. Uh, and that's kind of what put me on the trajectory of of the hunting industry. So, yeah, explain that time in your life. I mean, you 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 talk about <laughs> a lot of varied places: Missouri, Austin, USC, and then over to Africa. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself 
and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Hey, guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. I want to talk a little bit more about Africa in this conversation, sure. but describe that time where you first got to see that place and understand what it was. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, everybody has their own vision. They've heard stories, they've read books, they've watched movies, and then you get there and it's kind of your own experience. And uh, I remember getting there and, and you know, it was way out in the bush. So we took a bush plane two hours out in the middle of nowhere and I get there, it's dark. And I meet some people in the camp and they kind of take me on this tour and they show me the nice tents. And, and I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I kind of put my bag in. They're like, oh, no, 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 that's not your tent. That's the client tent. <laughs> and they take me to the back of the camp, which is in the pitch black. I, I don't even know what the area looks like. And this is um, in Tanzania. It's, it's called the Ruaha, or it was the Usangu Game Reserve, which is adjacent to the Ruaha National Park. And um, amazing area. And so I get out in this tent and they're like, okay, good night. And, um, you know, I, I can hear hyenas immediately. It's always nice. And then I hear lions. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'll just brush my teeth and go to bed. I literally step outside and I hear a lion roar. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to brush my teeth. And so uh, that first night was a little unnerving because I have never been there. I have no idea if a tent is safe. How close are those lions and hyenas? Um, but then I woke up and, and kind of saw the lay of the land. And um, I, I always say I, f- I feel like I went through a boy and came back a man because I literally, you know, no, this was before iPhones. There was no cell phones. There was no internet. There was a CB radio and a satellite phone. That was it. And, uh, you know, we hunted for our own food. They had a, a shamba in Swahili, which means farm. So they grew all their vegetables and we were eating everything that we grew and killed. And, um, you know, I be- learned Swahili, became like a family with all these people, learned how to track could tell within 10 minutes what time of day it was by looking at the sun mm. um, and just uh, it experienced this lifestyle that uh, didn't even know was real, right? And then it changed me completely. Yeah, how could uh, that not change you? Yeah, you know? and uh, I mean, I you want to talk about close encounters. I got charged by leopards. I had a lion come into my tent in the middle of the night and stare me down five yards away in a full okay, moon. Don't, don't, don't pass that over. Tell... <laughs> 
Tell both. Uh, so the lion story, this is something I actually wrote about in, in volume one of Modern Huntsman. Yeah. And um, so it's an area called the Kilimbaro. Uh, it's a floodplain in central Tanzania. And um, we were there hunting buffalo by river. You're in a boat with a triple-decker you know, observation tower and a Maasai sits on the top. And if he sees buffalo, he pulls the string and it rings the bell and the driver runs the boat. So you can't see anything. It's 14-foot grass. Um, but lions are very present in this area, and they're hunting these buffalo or or whatever. Um, and the tent in our tent, the zipper was broken uh, the, on the mesh, and um, it's so hot there that you can't sleep with the canvas closed. So we were sleeping with the tent wide open. Of course, my bed is is by the door, and um, Georgie Ferreira, who's this you know half Greek, half Brazilian, Swahili speaking professional hunter, he's like man of the world, and. Uh, he was like, oh, don't, don't be a wuss. You know, it's fine. You know? Like, bro, that's a lion. A well, lion. but so he's got the four, 470 double under his bed. He's <laughs> yeah. asleep, right? So, feeling, feeling real good about that. And, and this is the last time I ever took um, malaria medication. So um, I, and there's two different ones. There's malarone, which is a, uh, it, it's a daily pill. And then there's larium, which is the weekly pill. So I, that, I had this weekly pill, which gives you murderous nightmares sometimes. So I woke up in this panic, like, <gasps> and my heart was racing. I was sweating. I was panicking and realized it was just this, you know, malaria medicine. Um, and then about 30 seconds later, I hear, <laughs> which is a male lion right behind the tent. So I think, all right, do I have time to jump up, run out, untie the flaps, close the doors, zip it, jump back in. By the time I even flinched to do that, he called right next to my head outside the window. Just So I'm like, all right, well, here we go. And um, sat there and he walked out about to where that chair is. So le- less than five yards away wow. and 600 pound male, massive, had this big Mohawk mane and it's a full moon. So it's super bright. And, uh, I reached down to grab the bed frame because if he came, I was going to try to flip the bed on top of myself. Classic, the bed creaks. It's like, <laughs> and the lion just turns around and just stares me right in the eyes. And I'll never forget, it was so, I mean, I just got goosebumps thinking about it. It, it. it was deathly quiet and I could hear the sand as he dug his paws in and started to crouch and his tail started to do this. Oh boy. And so I'm like, all right, well, goodbye world. Uh, and, it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably only about 15 seconds. And then he turned around, walked over to the river, rubbed his face on the fence, jumped in the river, swam off. And I was like, Georgie, wake up. That damn lion was here. And you know, gets up in his underwear. He's acting all tough. Like, and the tracks were huge. And so um, he left. You know, We didn't see him. Next full moon, next exact month, uh, same tent, same camp, same lion comes back. But this time the door is closed. And he literally lays on the porch and sags the tent wall in. And he's like, like breathing. I can like see the canvas moving back and forth because he's breathing. And so at that point, I kind of decided that that lion was my spirit animal. Yeah, man. Because he just kept coming back. And I had actually, I forgot to mention this detail. Before he showed up the first time, as a joke, we shaved a mohawk into my head because my hair, it was just too damn hot. I was like, let's shave my head. And Georgie's like, let's do a mohawk first. Next day, the Mohawk lion shows up on the porch. 
so yeah, that that was a close call. Um, the story of the Mohawk Lion. Yeah, and uh, and that's in in Modern that, Huntsman Volume One. That was in Volume One. Um, you know, there's a couple other. A couple, I mean, plenty of lion encounters, plenty of elephant encounters. The, the leopard one was pretty funny. We, we were in Zambia, and we were uh, we were hunting uh, kudu and sable. And we, um, it's noon. We're driving in this Land Cruiser, no windshield, no roof, no doors, totally open air. And uh, all of a sudden, Lance, Lance, the PH slams on the brakes, and he's like, "Leopard, chewy," you know. And we all see it, and it's trying to dig a warthog out of its hole. It's pretty rare to see a leopard in the middle of the day like that. And so we're like, oh, cool. And we're like 30 yards away. So Lance is like, all right, I'm going to try to get closer and so you can get a good picture. So he turns sideways and the leopard kind of sneaks away behind this log. And it was just watching us from behind the log with his paws up. And uh, I got some video footage of it, but it was kind of boring. It was too far away for it to be good footage. And um, so I was like, all right, I'll take a couple pictures, then we can go. So I take two pictures. And as I click the shutter on the third one, he just comes right for me. And that thing covered 20 yards in two seconds. And he got about this far away and veered off. So it was a mock charge. And I had a big, you know, 72, 70 to 200 lens. I was just going to try to hit him in the head with it. They, they're going to get you. It's just a matter of how bad. Yeah. So I, I like put my arm around my neck so they can't get your neck. And I was just going to try to bash him with the lens. But it was a mock charge. So he ran off. <laughs> and I looked down at Lance and he's sitting there. He didn't reach for the keys, didn't reach for the gun laughing and he just turns to me and he goes did you shit your pants mate it's like <laughs> fuck you he's like i'm sitting i'm sitting near you dude you tell me yeah yeah so there's you know um i i think i i, I lived there i lived in tanzania for almost three years yeah and, and what really got you there i mean you, you know we kind of gave people the the lily pond like sure but what how did you get to find yourself there yeah so um really i i don't know how to describe it other than just destiny and that might sound contrived but I was at USC, and um, it was probably three months before I was about to graduate. And um, my dad, at the time, owned a store in Dallas that did screen printing and embroidery and all that. And it was next door to a home video edit. It was called You Edit Video. And we were friends with the manager because I used to run my dad's store. And um, the owner of the safari company came in there and uh, had a bunch of really crappy footage. And he's like, oh, I want to make DVDs for my clients. And they were like, well, this footage sucks. You should hire somebody who knows what they're doing and get like HD cameras. And the guy goes, okay, well, let's do that. And my dad happened to be privy to this conversation and just said, hey, well, my son's about to graduate from USC. You should hire him. And they said, okay. <laughs> so I literally got a call from my dad. And he's like, hey, T, I, uh, I sent you that mail. And you know, we looked at flights. And I think I got you a job in Tanzania when you graduate. And and so literally that's how it happened. So I literally when I graduated, I sold a bunch of my stuff, said bye to my friends in LA, moved back to Texas, you know, did the whole like Cabela's REI run, got all my safari gear, most of which is totally unnecessary, uh, and went and then had this amazing experience. But when I was there, I learned about Dallas Safari Club. And so when I came back and <laughs> side note, the company I worked for at the time, which I will not name totally screwed me over. Didn't pay me. My visa expired. Um, they never got my work permit. The owner fled the country. Oh. So so I'm in the bush in November, right? And I'm like, how am I? I don't even have a plane ticket home. I have like $100 to my name. And I'm like, how? In the US, it's kind of a big deal if your visa expires. 
And I was like, oh, how am I, you know, I asked one of the, the guys at the, at the office, like, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? He's like, oh, I'm Nashida Bona. You just put the money in the passport. I'm like, you want me to grease the customs officer? Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm Nashida Bona. Gabisa. And I'm, so literally to leave the country, I put a $100 bill over my expired visa, hand it to the guy, opens it up, takes the money out, stamps my passport, hands it back. And I went like straight to the bar, got a double whiskey <laughs> and made it back and that's when I learned about Dallas Safari Club. So I went, so this would have been January of 2007 was the first time I went to the show and threw together a photo book, uh, threw together a little DVD and just started going around to all the outfitters being like, please take me back to Africa. I don't want to live in real the world, real world, real anymore. world anymore. And uh, ended up meeting uh, a guy named Michelle Montiakis, who's a, 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 tan, a third generation Tanzanian. Um, he introduced me to the Knowlton family which uh, yeah. Corey Knowlton. Mm -hmm. And so I worked for the Knowlton family for almost three years. And I basically I would follow their uh, employees and, and clients around. Corey was a booking agent. Larry would send a lot of his um, uh, oil company employees. Yeah. On and hunts. for those who don't know, Corey was a, a long time on the professionals of Jim Shockey. Yeah. And they have the hunting consortium. Yep. yep. Um, so, so that's, that's Corey. So I've traveled around. I went to almost 30 countries in three years all over the world. I mean, Pakistan, Russia, Nepal, 14 countries in Africa. And, and, and so I was actually the original producer on The Professionals. So like me, Corey and I kind of came up with that concept together because and, and, the Outdoor Channel was telling Jim that they wanted him to do a second show. So we kind of came up with this idea and I was like, oh, this was right when DSLRs first came out. I was like, we need to get a Steadicam. We need to get a DSLR. And so, um, so yeah, I was one of the four original cameramen on The Professionals. And so if you remember that show, oh, yeah. there's the Ibex jumping, there's the water buffalo falling, that the bear running. That's all my footage. Oh, really? So I, I didn't know that, dude. Yeah. Well done. And it's funny because I saw it. Yeti did a montage and I saw the Ibex jumping. <laughs> I was like, that's my clip. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I did that for a little while and just got – just got burned out. Um, I was traveling. I was gone probably 9, 10, 11 months out of the year. Couldn't have a relationship. Never saw my family. Um, and being a hunting cameraman's hard. It's, yeah. it's rough. And it doesn't pay well. Um, I mean, I would never trade that because of the experience I got and the places I went and the relationships I formed with outfitters all over the world. Um, but then I, so I came back to Dallas and uh, this was probably 2012. And um, just kind of started to pursue more freelance stuff. You know, I, I, I'm an avid writer. And so I started trying to get more editorial work and brand work. So I kind of started to pursue brands like Filson and, and Stetson and Cabela's and, and ended up getting hired by Cabela's mm. and, and worked with Dushan. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and that was kind of the shift for me uh, because then I, I kind of, I almost quit photography because I was like, you know, as you know, being an editorial freelancer is impossible full time. Yeah, you can't make you so can't I, make ends meet. I was shooting weddings, do I was doing senior portraits, I was doing corporate headshots, whatever. Right? Should have you follow up your lion story with like a senior portrait. Oh my story. god, no. Please don't make me. Um so I, I almost quit. And I was like, I'm at the end of my rope, and I just thought to myself, okay, if I didn't have to worry about money and I could just do the kind of photography I want to do, what would it be? And that's, you know, kind of what we're doing now, right? Yeah. Sporting life documentary, uh, you know, conservation storytelling, 
um, outdoor adventure. You know, my mom's from Nakona, Texas, which is a pretty famous like Western history cowboy tent. Nakona boots and Justin boots are all from there. So I've done a lot of stuff with Texas Parks and um, I'm sorry, Texas Historical Commission. Um, and so I just kind of said, all right, you know what? From now on, I'm not going to take anything that's not this stuff. And um, I uh, managed to land a gig with Garden and Gun and started doing some work with them and, and worked with Cubby Rise for a while. Um, and then just through this entire process, right? Especially because Texas is a pretty hunting-friendly state. That's right. Right? But when I would come back from Africa, people would have these emotional reactions, because uh, they just, for whatever reason, they've got an emotional attachment to these animals or they've heard something online. And so I kind of had these two realizations. One, that the hunting industry does an absolute terrible job of communicating with non-hunters about why it matters, about its role in conservation. Um, And then the second part of that realization was that most non-hunters are either not educated or directly misinformed about hunting's role in conservation. And so uh, that combined with my experience with other magazines and how I felt like things could be done better, um, h- highlighting the contributors a lot more, you know, promoting things online um, is kind of what led to starting Modern Huntsman. Yeah. I think, and when people see, when you expressly say things like that, and I've said these things before, here's the problems I see with hunting. All right. And the messaging. I don't have any problem with the act of hunting. But the messaging being a problem. I think people, there's some people that are immediately turned off by, whoa, sure. Well, don't tell me what's wrong with what, mm-hmm. what I got going on. Yeah. So there's a, there's, a, there's a fine line to walk there. I think we try to walk it because we love it so much. It's, you want it to be um, beneficial for society. You want people that don't do it to understand it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's pressure there yeah. to do that. So with Modern Huntsman, like, how have you tried to walk that line? Because it is a, it's a... It's a thin one. It's difficult. Um, you know, I think we can all agree that hunting is in a hole. And it wasn't you and me that dug the hole. Yeah. Right? So that's a hard conversation to have, right? And and I feel like we're in a really difficult position because I've intentionally positioned modern huntsmen on the periphery of the hunting industry. Because if we are perceived as deep within the belly of that, we will not be able to accomplish our goal, which is to communicate with the 70 to 80% of people who don't hunt and improve their viewpoint of what we do, right? Which makes it hard because the hunting industry is so, um, I don't, I don't want to say, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but, uh, they stick to their own. Right. And I, I think you could agree with the story I just told, like I've, I've earned my chops, right? I've, I've seen and been and done, the hunting industry. And so I understand it. And I know that there's a lot of of really good people who are really dedicated to trying to keep it moving forward, uh, to keep it alive, to grow our numbers. However, the tone that's being used and the methods they're trying to communicate aren't working. And it's a, it's an us versus them. And I, you know, I wrote about this in, in my editor's letter, like it can't be us versus them anymore. It's gotta be all of us, both sides together against all of the conservation issues that we face. Yeah. I think, and I think there's some, there's some difficulties in all this. And one of the main difficulties is, is how you just articulated, like wanting to kind of position yourself away from the core, but then using terms like we and like we, Mm. what, who, what's we, you know, what's that collective really? Cause it's, it's hard to define if you feel like, well, these people don't represent me. I need to represent something different than them. 
or the way that they've done in the past, or at least like a sea change a bit in the messaging, it's hard to come to bring that all together, right? I mean, that's that's extremely difficult. Like pulling the core hunting community that's kind of stuck in their ways, or maybe caused this problem that you perceive towards your thing. That's that's hard. I think we've all found it to be hard. Thinking that, uh, you know, thinking is that better? Falling apart. Yeah. Because I can't. You can't. You I can, can hear me, but I you can can't. Hear it now. We're recording. Okay. Oh, there's something going on with this piece of machinery. Hmm. You can hear me? Yeah. Let me see. Let me see. Is this this is mine here? It goes back and forth. Hang on. Yeah. I wonder what that is. There I wonder if go. it's that there connection. Just trying no, not to good. jack with it. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I. <laughs> I've used this metaphor before, and uh, I haven't. I haven't been blasted for it yet. So. Get ready. I'll just keep going with it. <laughs> um, you know, it's like you have a grandpa who's kind of handsy, right? And you're at the birthday party, and grandpa maybe like grabbed your girlfriend. You're like, grandpa, you caused some problems, and we love you, and you're a good guy, but just you need to sit in this chair for the rest of the party, and there'll be a time when you can come back. But for right now, we got to fix this, right? And so, grandpa, right? That's not a specific person. That's not a specific organization. That's let's call it. The old mentality, right? The yeah. So let's articulate that. Like, what's the old? Well, well, articulate the old mentality as you see it, and then what modern Hudson represents. Sure. So I think that the old mentality in, let's say, the '90s, right? Um, there wasn't social media, right? And and there wasn't the uh, global uh, spread of information in a second, right? And so there was this kind of combative language that was going on, right? The, the us versus the antis kind of thing. Well, the antis aren't, it's not as descript anymore. It is now uh, because they've, they're smart, they've mobilized, they've created media conglomerates. So now it's not just that organization versus this organization. It's whatever they want to say goes to the entire world. And they are much better at social media and, and, and media. I mean, like Cecil the Lion, nobody in Africa knew who Cecil the Lion was. Nope, nope. That was he was not a celebrity, but they were brilliant in their marketing, and they came up with a campaign, and they accomplished their goal, right? And, and as a result, lion importation and elephant importation in the United States has been banned, which has had drastic effects on the on the African conservation. Tanzania has lost over fifty percent of its hunting blocks because people can't afford to manage yeah. it anymore. So I think that when I go, I'm going to go back to the us versus them thing. It can't be a fight anymore. It, it's a f- okay. Let me change that. It has to be a fight, but we got to fight differently, right? It's got to be a constructive conversation. It can't be rock throwing anymore because it's not working. It's in fact, I think it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. If if that's the path we continue down, and so um, it's a difficult conversation, right? Because these are these are people that I've worked with and respect, and uh, and 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 it's it's hard in the same in any relationship, right? To say, hey, listen, I feel like you screwed up. Right and 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 communicate that to someone in a way that's respectful, uh, that doesn't um, get their defenses up because that's the key, right? Yeah. In anything, right? So and 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 I think that's the difference with modern hunting, where we are, ha- we are, it's working. We're having conversations with non-hunters, with vegans, with vegetarians, with brands like Patagonia, because we're doing it in a different way. That I I don't know if I want to say it's more respectful, but it's in a tone that 
isn't getting their defenses up and, and is, is making it more possible for us to actually have a conversation and point out the material in an educational way rather than a defensive way. Mm. Because if it gets defensive, no one listens. Yeah, and is there, do you feel like, I think specifically when we talk about the messaging, sure. there's no way to get around. It's annoying to me and I'm sure annoying to you to continue to talk about trophy hunting scandals because some person took a picture with some animal right. that somebody didn't like. It's it's getting to be real old, but it's still when you hear about hunting in the media. In fact, uh, I believe what it was, CBS just ran a thing about trophy hunting and mm-hmm. had, you know, is the trophy hunting versus conservation, right? And that continually is the messaging. And people, like you said, people that live in Chicago, they might live in New York. This is the only thing they see, sure. And so, how do you change that part? Is there a way to change that part? Because that's we just got to change the word. Yeah. So in Namibia, so Byron and I were just over in Namibia speaking on a, a j- journalism symposium in a room full of mostly non-hunters talking about African hunting, yeah. which was super interesting. However, Namibia has deliberately changed their term to conservation hunting. It's no longer trophy hunting. And just that right there, right? Because yeah. when people hear trophy, and we could, we could spend all the time in the world trying to describe to someone, okay, well, trophy technically means memento. Right. And so if you are trying to harvest an old, the oldest, biggest bull you can, that's one of the best things you can actually do for the the herd dynamics. Right. But that's not what people think. They think you're just going for the big antlers. And some people are. Right. And that's fine. Right. But we have to be cognizant of the fact that we live in a world where stuff gets spread all over the world immediately. And then there are a lot of people who are going to take that and misappropriate it and use it to their own gains. Uh, for whatever financial you know initiatives they have, uh, and so do I think that people should be able to post their trophy photos because they they they're proud of it? Yeah, I think they do. However, that's not the reality of the world we live in. And so I think that if you truly care about the future of hunting, right, you have to at least be aware of the consequences of doing something like that. Mm-hmm. And it can't be this. And this is part of the the old mentality, like, oh, screw this, I'm going down with the ship. We don't want the ship to go down. We would like the ship to stay afloat, and that's what I'm devoted to. Mm. And uh, we're going to get chastised for it and criticized for it because we're not saying the same things. And I I would like to, I have to, you know, we have ties and alliances within the hunting industry, but it's not the majority. I'm having to gain that, and, and, and it's not a short conversation, right? It's something yeah. that takes uh, sitting down and, and me being able to explain the chess game that we're playing. Yeah, and I think give people a few examples of, you don't have to name names, sure. but like times you've been challenged. Sure. Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, for, for instance, me personally, right? Um, someone goes to my Instagram account and there's not pictures of dead animals on there, right? And so I've been accused or criticized for not being a real hunter, right? Or being hardcore, whatever you want to call it. But that's a choice, right? Because if I put, uh, th- there's a way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I don't do it the right way, then it's going to unravel all the work we've done. So, um, Per, as, a, as an individual, I see myself as a diplomat, right? I see myself as an ambassador for what I believe to be our 
you know, the virtues of hunting. Like, and, I, and I can't sit here and give you a list of like, okay, this is right, this is wrong. Because as you know, it's incredibly nuanced and there's a lot of gray area. But in the same way that we could both agree that honesty and integrity and loyalty and bravery are all virtues, right? They represent a moral center. That's what we're trying to promote in this book is the people and the places and the situations and the organizations that represent what we feel to be our you know, virtues of mm-hmm. hunting, uh, presenting that in a visual format that could be that could win a design design awards, um, and that allows access and uh, you know engagement from people who aren't part of the hunting industry. So, would you say that like I'm looking at the volume three cover? It's a beautiful photo of a hunter. What's he tracking? It's a water buffalo. A water buffalo in uh, Arnhem Lands in Australia. It's a beautiful photo. Would you say this represents like your proposed new way of thinking? And then, if you were to look at another magazine with a dude sitting behind a big giant buck, and that's like the older way. There's plenty of magazines sure. that we can call well, to. We won't call them out. But it's just like there's that and there's this. Well, how do you see those two things? Right. I don't want to call it a new way of thinking because it's not a new way of thinking. Right. There's been people throughout history who have tried to do things yeah, yeah. what they feel to be as a better say way. your way of thinking. Sure, this version sure. of, uh, of let, let's call it a um you know a different philosophy yeah right one that's focused on in i hate to use the word use the word inclusiveness because that's kind of a buzzword but uh we're, we're talking to a different audience then mm-hmm. so the so I'll, I'll give you i will give yeah. you that because there's examples in volume three mm-hmm. max low is in here yeah a lot of people listen to this won't know who max low is max low is in the outdoor recreation industry is like a rising star. Yeah. Climber, his, his I would say his stepdad is Conrad or Conrad is, Anchor. Um, yeah. Conrad Anchor. So this is a person that isn't traditionally involved in what we do. Anything with hunting. Right. He tell and he tells a story in here yeah. about some of that. Um but there's also guys like Jason Matzinger in here who is core hunting. Right. Um and Guys like Charles Post, who isn't? Jesse Griffiths, probably not. Right. So there's just a lot of different perspectives here. Yeah, so I'll th- give you that. I yeah. think that's, that's in the work it is reflected. And I think that the difference, right, with a magazine with a, a big buck on the cover with a guy sitting behind it, that's, that's speaking to a specific audience, right? There's, there's people who that's what they want to see. Mm-hmm. Like they know how to score that deer. They probably know where it was. Or, and and that's, uh, it's a specialized thing, right? And so we're not talking about a specialized thing. We're talking about engaging with a non-hunting public. And I'm doing my best to maintain credibility in the hunting industry that we do have a balance of people who are legitimate hunters. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think that like we were talking about earlier, we're not, when I say we, the hunting industry, are not going to survive if we don't allow other people who aren't considered core hunters into the space. Yeah. Because that number is dwindling and things are changing. Number populations are growing. Humans are screwing everything up, right? It's true. And so I think that, um, you know, a lot of the crossover we've had has been with the outdoor industry. Mm-hmm. Guys like Chris Burkhardt. Yeah. Right? Guys like uh, Ben Moon and, and Josh Murphy, who are award-winning filmmakers who do a lot of work with Patagonia. And, and, and every issue has been a progression. And we're now having conversations. Our next issue is a women's issue. And it's, it's all, every story is going to be focused on women and hunting and conservation and, and, you know, culinary and arts and all that. 
And that is a really great access point for some of these outdoor brands who now see the rising interest in the female population or people, you know, we had a quote from Yvonne in, in, um, in the second issue that was like, people aren't just hunters anymore. They're hikers and they're yeah. climbers and they're surfers and they're hunters. Yvonne Chouinard, Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you're right. And I do feel, I will say, I want to let, let you talk about your thing here. I think it's just, it's interesting and important. But I do agree with you. I feel, I feel that as a community, we know we got to grow. Everybody would yeah. agree with that, yeah. right? How we do it, the way in which we message is something we can talk about all day. But I feel very strongly that if we, if as a community, not everyone does this, but there are certain factions that do. Right. If we're going to push out people that think differently and look differently and act differently, if we're going to like typify a hunter, and mm-hmm. if you don't live up to that that thing, if we're going to push you out or or downgrade your status in the hunting industry if we're gonna do things like that to people then we're not going to grow we're never going to have the chance to right. expand the way we think expand the way um other folks think about us like we're never going to build a bridge yeah ever and so regardless of how of who's on either side of the bridge if we can't bring someone in and say okay you're not you're a brand new hunter you may be legit in this field but you're not legit come over let's yeah. teach you let's learn from you exactly like if you can't do that, you're never gonna. Nothing's ever gonna happen. Well, so I do agree with that part. It's a, it's an opportunity, you know. I think that that um, a lot of people who are experienced hunters, and especially out in the West, you know, uh, I, I would say in a sense they're kind of xenophobic, right? They don't. Montana's full. Go home, right? Mm-hmm. Which you know you don't want gentrification, you don't want massive development, all that. But if someone's there, right, with a California plate and they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, that's an opportunity to engage with them and maybe yeah. teach them the right way, right? Rather than have a confrontational experience that's going to make them feel unwelcome or turned off from now be, you know, growing their interest in, in hunting and fishing. You know? And I think that that's a really important thing to do. And it's hard, right? Because, and, and I wrote about this in the editor's letter, that in a way, Modern Huntsman is meant to be a mirror that's forcing us in the hunting industry to think about the what the things we say and the things we do and we're not going to like some of that right and and so i would my hope is that we are not blamed as the mirror the the mirror instrument of reflection yeah. by viewing something unpleasant about the way things are versus the way they should be yeah and so i think that you know in the spirit of self improvement i would hope that uh, over time that these things can move forward and, and that this can be easier. And, and you got, let's, let's think about, you know, Dallas Safari Club and SCI, right, at these shows. Think about a non-hunter walking into those shows. It's terrible. They're like, what is this? You know, and I would like to see, and this is a conversation I'm having with Corey at Dallas Safari Club, is that even if it's a small section that, that, that is presented differently, that it's maybe it's a gallery of some of this work or it's, you know, some films or it's uh, some chefs or it's something that's not just, you know, the traditional convention center with a bunch of blown up dead animals all over it with, you know, that that's what it's about. That the current, because that currency is big horns uh, and, and big hunts. And that currency needs to shift a little bit, right? So that it's more about the experience because I think we could all agree at least you and me, I don't know about everybody, and that's fine if you want if you're just out for the score, but I don't hunt for that. Like I hunt for the experience. Yeah. And that is the that is the way that we get other people involved because yeah. that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and like 
I, I feel. Let me. I'll play devil's advocate for a minute because it's always fun to go. I wouldn't expect anything. Go else. there. That's me. I'm the devil's advocate. But I really, I would say one in this conversation. I want to let you just say what Modern Huntsman is, sure. and get that out there. I was having a conversation. I'm going next week to Berkeley, California. Yep. I'm going to go to the Berkeley Animal Rights Center. And I'm going to have a conversation with some uh, animal rights activists. And in talking to them, I said, specifically about trophy hunting, what is it that you, what is it that gets you about it? Mm -hmm. It's like, because you're talking about the motivation of the individual. You're not talking about the benefit. Because if you're looking at the benefit of trophy hunting for African game and conservancies and when they're created and the fact that there's more, more game than ever and it's more valuable than ever for the people that live there. It's kind of you can't really argue that when you really when you look at the facts. Yeah, can't. It's hard to argue. But if let's just say if uh, there's a small amount of people in this case, and 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 those those shows kind of typify or signify what that really is. Small amount of people with a lot of money. Yeah, who think a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Those you would never set up a stable conservation system in that way. A very small amount of people with a lot of funding that desire to go to a place that they that they may or may not care about. It's right. not required to them to care about the economic or social and econo- economic issues in Africa or any one right. country or the wildlife populations in the place where they go. It's required of them to pay the money and get on a plane and go do their thing. So we've not analyzed their motivations, which makes that relationship unstable, right? right. It's an unstable relationship. You're relying on that small room of people that walk around at DSC or SCI and fund right. what is a very important conservation initiative. So I think that, I just think from a, from a pragmatic level, devil, from a de, even from a devil's advocate level, that's unstable. We, so you have that point. And then you have what's motivating that small mm-hmm. group of people to go over there and kill those animals. Because I, I don't think anti-hunters or non-hunters would have a problem if that motivation was removed. If those people were flying over there, they happened to kill a couple of animals and eat them, but they were given that money to, you know, a conservation organization right. or to a small government or to some uh, individual or group of people that could better the mission. Yeah. And so I, it, for, for most folks, I think it falls apart with that motivation. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. So it's hard to separate the motivation from the end result. Yeah, and I think that um, that's something we're actually talking a lot about. to boil volume three down to the, the you know, when I say, say it in like a, a one statement, it's 
there's a lot of amazing animals in the world. And for one circumstance or another, a lot of them have to die. Yeah. And thankfully, there are a lot of systems in place that make sure that that is done responsibly, sustainably, and financially, financially sensibly. I don't, yeah, know, if, yeah. I don't know if you can yeah, use two leads in a row, but no, you can. Yeah. So uh, in that sense, right, the conversation I, I've always had about Africa, right, because I filmed a, ga- or a gamut, right? Mm-hmm. Some guys saved their whole life to go on a buffalo hunt and like cried the first time they shot a buff with their 470 double rifle which was amazing, right? And then I've got guys who like just couldn't care less. This is their 20th safari, right? And just like with any job, you keep your mouth shut, right? You bite your tongue and you say, you know what? This guy doesn't uphold what I feel to be are the virtues of hunting. And, and I feel like somebody should appreciate what they're being able to do right here, but they don't, right? Thankfully, the system is in place where the money they're paying is going to the people mm-hmm. who do care and are helping that continue. Um, but that's something that we're trying to do is show that there's a difference, right? There are the people who don't give a shit. They just want to kill, right? But that's not most of us. And so I think that creating that distinction for the public, right? Because when they when someone looks online and they see sensationalized Facebook posts or some, you know, you know, main media slander. They lump hunters all into that category. Well, and that's the narrative. Let's be right. honest. No, 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 I it mean, is. The, the mainstream, what, however you would define mainstream, that's the narrative oh, that's yeah. pushed. Absolutely. And it's often like pushed the narrative to the point now where there, there's enough people questioning, okay, well, what's the counter narrative? Right. That even when you, when you watch the new CBS thing or any of the, you know, any of the documentaries, you find people embracing the counter narrative right. enough at least to address it. Exactly. And set up the two different sides. Yeah. So I think that that's really the point is to show that, look, this, there's more than that, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and to do that requires a little bit of separation from that, right? And so, um, you know, not to say that one's holier than thou, right? But it's one of those things where um, I, find, I found myself being held accountable for someone else's actions. And I don't really think that's, oh, you can't say it's fair because that doesn't matter. But you know what I mean? I'm trying to do something about it. Yeah. Right. To show that there are other people in this world who do things differently. And yeah, those guys are assholes, right? Maybe the one guy is a dick. But you know what? He does pay a lot of money and that money goes to the right places. So we can accept the bad behavior of grandpa, you know, and, and he can he can still hang out, but we just need to know that like we have our differences. And I would hope over time that um that the support of some of the and you know I worked for a lot of um of of guys who are you know Texas um kind of oil barons right and there's some of the nicest most mm-hmm. humble people I've ever met in my entire life um but they're they're old school right and they're super conservative and so and I'm I'm not a democrat or a liberal by any means I spent my entire life in Texas but so I I try to stay middle of the road it's my job now to be an observer and understand both sides and try to find a, a, a solution, not a solution, but at least progress towards a solution. And so the conversations I'm having with guys, you know, like, like Larry or some of my former clients is, listen, we're all going the same direction, right? We all have the same goal, but the road that we've been on before isn't working. And so we, we're trying to go on a different road and more than anything, we just need your help, yeah. right? And we need you to understand that this is not some infiltration you know, greeny, you, you know, whatever you want to call it, 
this is it's a psychology move. It's a, it's a chess move, and we need the backing. So yeah. you know, those are conversations I'm having with leadership of some of these organizations. Is we need we need meat eater. We need you know BHA. We need all of those, but we also need this too because when you look at the spectrum, we've got to cover more than just the ground we're currently covering. Yeah. And so that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I mean, do you, when you have those conversations with folks in those positions, because I think I've probably made the mistake in the past of condemning those entire organizations because right. when i go you know when i go i think wild sheep does a pretty good job of yeah they've done a pretty good job gray thornton and crew have done a you know what i would, would would say is a great job of of understanding what's going on and trying to you go to their show and you really feel that they're right. they're making an effort to kind of see both sides of that coin, sure. see how it was see how it needs to be and really put that all together in one thing What's the conversation with folks at like Safari Club or Dallas Safari Club? Do they see it when you talk to them? Do they recognize it? Are they are they worried or or is it insular? Seeing it more, right? Um, because I mean, it's a two hundred seventy two page book. It's not something to be like, hey, read this pamphlet real quick, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's it's pretty in depth. Um, you know, I think that the hunting industry or a lot of these organizations, right? However good our intentions might be in most cases, it's a room full of members of the same club, all agreeing with each other. Mm -hmm. And when that conversation goes outside of the room to people that aren't part of that club, a lot of times it ceases to be productive because the communication is broke down. Right. And so in the same way that, uh, you know, you can think about a PR campaign or a communication strategy or a style guide. That's what we're trying to do is create a new method of communication, uh, of, of visual representation that is still uh, is accomplishing the same goals. But again, is, is we're trying to go around it. So when they see that, they're not thinking about Cecil the Lion, even though we're going to talk about it yeah. and we're going to hit him with the truth, you know? So I, I think that that's no matter what it is, right? Um, because so much of the messaging of these organizations is is in interior, right? It's two other hunters, yeah. it's it's this or that, which is important, right? Because there's a lot of hunters who, you know, could perhaps stand to to learn more about you know public land or uh, do more than just pay the the Pittman Robertson tax, right? Or get involved, right? That's all stuff that's good. Um, but like, like we all agree that those numbers are going down. So where's that going to come from? And mm. I personally believe it's going to come from outside. And the only way to accomplish that is to communicate in a different way. Yeah. Do you feel like, I, I'm sure I'm guilty of this at some level too. You feel like you talk so much about it and you think so much about it and you, you think about a, you know, like you said, it's not a new way, but it's just like your way right. of articulating what hunting yeah. is or what it could be, or it's really it's value proposition for society, which I think is what we're talking yeah. about anyway. Yeah, like is it valuable for society? Yes right. or no? Right. That's what everybody wants to know. Is hunting? We're in a different spot. It, we have human linkage, right. know, like all the way going back to when we were hominids mm. to, to this activity. So th there's no arguing that. But in the modern sense. Our link, the links in the chain are starting to get, yeah. get broken. Yeah. Um, so, is there, is there a, a, a version of this where you're worried about 
pulling the wool over people's eyes. Like, hey, this is how it really is, right? Modern huntsman is how it really is. But people can re- can the people that I don't agree with can remain under the cover of what I've created to do the things they want to do. No, absolutely not. I I do not in any way believe that this is you know hardline. This is the way it should be. Right. Right. I think that what I'm tr- what what we're trying to do is. We're not trying to be the experts. I'm not. I mean, I I spent a lot of time in Africa, right? So I have a lot of experience that has given me knowledge, but I'm not an expert. And I don't know. You, you're pretty. Your expertise is pretty bona fide. Well, okay, but we're not talking about. But, that, but yes, I'm not a researcher. Right. I don't live there, right. even though I have. And there are basically, if we were going to get put on the spot, I would not. I would get somebody else who knows more than me there, right? And so on all of these topics and all these issues, I'm trying to bring together a diverse array of perspectives that present what I feel to be constructive conversations, right? To show some diversity, to talk about it in a different way. Um, and it's not that I think that like this is the way it should be. Charles always says the term best and could be better practices, right? Mm-hmm. These are people that we feel like are doing really good work, right? Doesn't mean that somebody else is bad and we're not trying to point fingers or slap wrists, but showing good examples that we feel good about promoting, Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's going to be ever-changing, right? Yeah. Because the whole hunting is conservation thing, right now, it is, right? Hunting pays for whatever, you know, what's the percent, 90 to 95%? That's going to go down. Bec- oh, yeah. You know? And so what's the alternative, right? The alternative has got to be a, a cross-collaboration with non-hunting organizations, right? Yeah. I mean, in Africa, the perfect example, I was just in Namibia, and there's... Um, you know, there, there's these community-based conservancies, right? Where a, a village gets to decide, they participate in the census, they get to decide who gets to hunt, they, they vet the outfitter, uh, they get community hunting privileges, they get the meat, they get the money, they decide how to use the money, right? They're managing their own wildlife resources. But these areas bump up against photographic safari areas, Right? And in most cases, the photographic lodges were paid for by the community conservancy. So they're now having to have these difficult conversations because these photographic clients come in, they're like, oh, this is bullshit. I can't yeah, right. believe you would allow people to murder these animals. Like, well, first of all, murder means human. Second of all, this was paid for by that. And so those conversations are helping them, you know, in- and that allows them to hire more scouts, right? More anti-poaching. Now the farmers are invested in protecting the wildlife rather than scaring them off with a pitchfork because they smashed their crops. And so that mixture, right, uh, of of non-hunting and hunting is that's the only way. I f- I feel like I don't know what that mixture looks like, yeah. but the conversations are starting now, and and those are conversations we were having in Africa. Um, and and it's something that actually we're probably going to do a story on is is plant someone in these lodges and interview photographic safari people as they come through. Like, hey, how, how do you feel about the fact that this place was funded by community based hunting? You know, they're not gonna, yeah. Use like that as an opportunity to educate them. You know? That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I'm at too. And I wonder. There's a lot of things where this manifests itself. The point that I'm making about wanting to say this is the way I think about hunting. You should love hunting the way I love it. And then people come walking into you know the tent in which we've invited them to come into, right. and they look around they're like, "Wait a minute, what's that over there?" They're like, "Well, that's kind of that's Grandpa. He's right. over there." And so that manifests itself in a lot of things. We say harvest, not kill. We like to, we've watered down some of the things right. in an effort to better message, but right. we've also watered down the realities. 
So how do you balance that? Because I, I, I will sure. I do that all the time. But so how do you specifically I've used this do that? example before too. So think about if you're talking to your wife, right? And you're, maybe you're feeling in the mood. There's a difference in saying, I would like to make love or mm-hmm. I would like to screw. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So think of it that way. The, the choice of words and the tone that those words inject. And that's kind of the whole basis of this is, do we need to apologize? No. Do we need to change our lifestyles? And in most cases, no. Do we need to change the way that we present ourselves and the way that we communicate with people who aren't in the hunt industry? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. in a major way. Or it's going to get worse. And and so I think that um, you know that's that's kind of what it is. And and it's uh, and instead of saying, okay, we're backed up against the ropes, we're going to start swinging. Mm. Just get out of the ring for a second. Be like, you know what? Let's have a beer. Let's take a break. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. I'm not good at boxing anyways, so. Which isn't true, by the way. Yeah, you're telling me. Yes. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, it's one, people who know me will know, it's a willingness to have the conversation. Yeah. Like the strength of right. conviction to know, like, I love this thing. I want to I have every single conversation I can possibly have to make yeah. it better. I, I want to show that in my actions. I want to yeah. show that in my creative work, which, yeah. which, is, um, which, which is what Modern Huntsman is, but like continue to believe that this is good. Yeah. Believe that it needs a better PR. Yeah. And believe that I, me, you, whomever, yeah. can be a part of that change. Sure. Is that change going to, is there going to be some spasmatic pushback from any change or any kind of like stated purpose like yeah. that? Of course there's going yeah. to be. Um, but I think there's, you've been tested. I've been tested. Like people will test you. Mm-hmm. Do you really believe this? Yeah. How much do you believe this? How much are you willing to stand by the thing that you said that's controversial or the thing that you said that not everyone agrees with? Yeah. Um, it's tough. You talk yeah. about being close to brands. I'm close to brands. We have people that help fund what we do or part of what we do, and it's hard to challenge yeah. cultural norms in that in that overbranded environment. Yeah, and and I I want to clarify, I don't I don't mean that every single person needs to do this. Yeah. Right. I think that uh, that there are always going to be, you know, individuals who choose to be the the mouthpiece or the the vagabonds or whatever it is. That this isn't like oh everybody needs to become better. It's more about an awareness of the need for it, mm. right? And I know that not everybody is going to agree with what I say or that is going to support Modern Huntsman. And it doesn't matter what I say or what I do. There's going to be some people who just hardline in the sand against it for whatever reason, and that's fine. I would just hope that they would have the ability to understand what we're trying to accomplish. And in the same way that the diplomats and conservationists and statesmen before us had a sense of, of classy competition, you know, to just respect it and respectfully disagree, right? Instead of drag it through the mud or, or debase it for, for some reason that isn't true. Um, and that's still going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, situations like this to be able to for the first time ever actually talk about this with you um about what what it why yeah i mean you I, know? And, and i'm it's like so i always it, i beat this drum a lot but i i feel like the reason that, that this is interesting to me and the reason hunting and sporting ethics are interesting to me and the reason that conservation other than its tangible benefits is mm-hmm. interesting to me is because as a practice it's always shifting and moving and growing 
Ecology is that way. Yeah. Ecosystems are that way. The outside world is that way. Mm-hmm. Always moving, shifting, growing, changing. You always have to react to what's happening. You can't always manage wildlife in the way that you've always mm-hmm. managed wildlife. And you can't always talk about hunting the way you've always talked about hunting and 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 you can't always practice ethical boundaries, like place your ethical boundaries in the same places. You have to move and shift them around yeah. based on you know, your personal experiences in your situation. So that's why there, there is, it's endlessly interesting to me. It yeah. may, it may never come to a conclusion. It likely will never. Right. But that's the, per, that's, that's what hunting is. Hunting yeah. is this, this tangible activity that is always moving and always changing within who we are, what we yeah. do, our humanity for Christ's sakes. Yeah. That may be overstating it, but <laughs> I mean, it is, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, and it's funny cause I, I always, I had this realization I think it was maybe 2008, 2009. I had just come back from Pakistan where, where we where we, I was with Shaki and we were filming the Ibex hunt up there. And um, we stayed, I stayed for an additional three weeks. I'm going to tell a side story and I'll come back to that. Please. Uh, with Corey's brother, Buck Knowlton, who, side name. note, le- got noodling legalized in the state of Texas. And uh, we stayed in Pakistan for another three weeks one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Um, and we, we had a little guide who took us around and saw museums and went hunting. Uh, and we had grown beards out and we were wearing the shalwar kameez just to try to blend in a little bit. And um, we were in Lahore, which is, I believe, the capital. And um, Brady and I, well, Buck and I were, were driving around. We, and we were in like a Toyota Camry. So, and it was clean and it wasn't dented up. So it's a pretty nice car for there. And this guide is driving us and we're going down this road and there's like donkeys jumping on cars and just madness. And this cop car just comes screaming up next to us, runs us off the road, screaming, pointing to get out of the car, aims his gun at my head, you know, shouting at me in Urdu. And, um, and we, uh, we had no idea what was going on. And uh, it turns out there had been a terrorist attack and I fit the description of one of the terrorists. Um, remember that famous National Geographic picture of the girl, the Afghani girl? Yeah, yeah. She's Patan, which is a region in Pakistan um, that just so happened that these gunmen were from there. And so I literally, it was a green-eyed, dark-haired, got light-skinned <laughs> guy. So I almost got gunned down on the side of the road in Pakistan. And... Um, and and after that, you know, we showed them our passports. They're like, "Oh, hey, like, you know, <laughs> they're all friendly at this point." So, uh, and then I went home, and I, when I would try to tell this story, or actually, I don't even think I ever told my mom that's that story. But when I try to tell any story or have a conversation, I I think about my small town Texas mother. How do I tell a story in a way that she will take something away from it, right? That she can understand it. That can't be so in the weeds and, and you know, jargon and big words and, and based on individual experience only that it's got to be something that, you know, and I, and I need to, I say this every time, I need to look up whose quote this actually was, but it was one of the classics, right? Galileo <laughs> somebody or Aristotle. Smart. Somebody real somebody smart. Somebody real smart. And dead. They said, what good is wisdom if the common man can't understand it? Right, and so I think that that's kind of the goal is to present what are otherwise perceived to be pretty controversial or complex topics in a way that not only the common person can understand from a storytelling point, but also somebody who has zero access or very limited access to a background in hunting. You know, yeah. Well, we have a segment on the show called "Damn Near Died." I was going to ask you later <laughs> on about it, but I feel like you've given yeah, I've you've got like a, three of them. I've there's been a lot actually. 
There was one that happened two days ago. Okay, this this one's going to be sponsored by Federal Premium. Thanks, Federal <laughs> Premium. We could possibly apply it to the other three, but this one we're going to might go be with. controversial yeah. if it's sponsored by Federal Premium, but uh, we'll see. So they'll uh, like they'll like it. I was in Yellowstone and uh, I was fishing with a buddy um, on Sunday, so a couple days ago, and uh, he left. He he went back to Bozeman, and I was taking my time um, coming up from the west entrance up towards Gardner and past the Norris Geyser basins and. Um, I wanted to stop somewhere and just kind of get out and enjoy myself. So I stopped. I saw this like nondescript pull out with no trailhead pulled out and I could see some steam coming from down there. I was like, Oh, it's kind of cool. I've never been down there. I'm gonna go check it out. So I get my binos, get the bear spray, get some water, go down there. And, um, it's this really cool, open scalded white area with steam coming up everywhere. And I was like, I don't want to fall into a volcano. I'm going to stay close to the tree line. So I, I follow the tree line. I, I go down there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, kind of explore, find this huge pool that's like spring fed. Like, okay, I should probably start going back. So I come back and in the same way that you can sense when a lion is close, like all of a sudden I could feel that there was a bear like right there. And I froze and like grabbed the bear spray and hurt him, right? And I, I kind of started to sneak towards the direction I thought was uh, the opposite way. And then I see another pair of tracks right there. And I go a little bit further and I see two more pairs of tracks. There was four bears. Oh. And I was like, oh, you know, I mean, I just got goosebumps again. And, uh, and I was, you know, on high alert. I started kind of kicking rocks and trying to make a little bit of noise. Um, and just, I didn't run, but just started to briskly move towards my truck. And I get up the hill and I get back to my truck and this park ranger comes driving up, slams on his brake. He's like, oh my God, is this your Tacoma? I was like, yeah. He's like, thank God you're alive. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, we just chased this super aggressive female and her three cubs off the road down to exactly where you were. And so probably within 30 seconds, this like pissed off female and her three cubs came running through there. And I missed the tracks by like Holy. this much. Yeah, they would have just kept running with you in the in their mouth, probably. And so he was, and then he kind of made light of it, you know. But oh, uh, you're alive! Yeah, pretty much. And same yeah. as your buddy back there in Africa yeah. with the so, lion. Uh, so yeah, that was a that was a, an exciting end to the Yellowstone trip on Sunday. Well, good. You got about like four damn near dieds in mm-hmm. one podcast, and we've <clears throat> there's more <laughs> if you need them sometime. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, maybe I'll have you call other guests <laughs> and like seed danger shit that you've done to them. But yeah, I mean, I think all this, man, all this conversation for me, I can it can get repetitive for me. So it's nice to have you come here and just kind of explain what your mission is, what the purpose of modern huntsman is, and your sure. your vision for it. Because I've been I've been in journalism for you know to eleven years, something like that. Um, I think every print writer, every creative that puts together media would take a look at modern hunts and be like this is good like it's it's good for a lot of reasons it's quality paper it's good photography it's well thought out it's diverse um and and not only in its its subject matter but in its personalities and in the characters within it so i you know that's what i think and i've thought that since the beginning and so kudos for that i think it stands out in that way above a lot of things that are done in its own way. So, and it's, and it's got its own personality. Like it's got its own function within the world. It's clear to me. Um, so thanks for that. I think there's no bad effort. There's no, there's, it's a net positive no matter how it shakes out. Yeah. Well, 
you know, and it's one of those things where we're going to stumble or, and it, you know how high the stakes are, mm-hmm. right? So it's so difficult to move forward in, you know, the way that you feel like is the right way. Cause if you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. A lot of times, a lot of cases you can't take it back. Yeah. Right. Or it could be the end. And, uh, and so it, it is, you know, the stakes feel very high. And, uh, and I, I remember trying to explain it to my mom and she was like, Tyler, she's like, it sounds like you're just diving head first into controversy. <laughs> <laughs> your mom's your mom's Texas accent. I was like, fantastic. pretty pretty much actually. You're thank you for pointing that out. What's to wrong me. with you, Tyler? Yeah, come on. Uh, uh, actually, side note, uh, my first name is actually William. I go by William Tyler, uh, and which was WT. a pain in the ass growing up because you you know you oh, get called in elementary school and they're like. William Sharp, I'd have to say here, but I go by Tyler, and then all the kids make fun of you. Straight up, I asked her about five years ago, why did you name me William Tyler, and decide to go by my middle name? And her straight answer, she goes, well, I named you William Tyler, because I hope when you grow up, we call you Billy T. <laughs> <laughs> so if Modern Huntsman crashes and burns, and I fail, and you see this, I'm going to become an outlaw country singer named Billy, Billy T. T. So look out be for that f- release. I'll be looking for Actually, please don't look out, because that would be a bad sign. That would be so, terrible. Yeah. We're gonna look at some of the people that are in Volume Three. When's Volume Three come out? By the way, so it should be shipping hopefully next week. Oh, by the time you hear this, it'll be out in the yeah. world. Yeah. So um, go go pick it up. You got this is this is to to your credit. You have Dude Perfect. People tell people who Dude Perfect are. If they yeah. Don't know so that. they are five uh, just friends from Texas who started making trick shot videos in their backyard. And I, I didn't know this, but the first YouTube video they ever posted, Good Morning America, called them the next day. And since then, they've become, they fluctuate between number one and number two YouTube channel in the world. Oh, they got a show on like what, Nickelodeon? They I did. Believe? They have a partnership with Bass Pro and all, all that. But I think they have about 40 million. I'm sure it's more by the time we've done the interview. Um, but they're big hunters. And so they have struggled with being able to communicate about their hunting. They, they realize that Dude Perfect's that channel. People aren't going to that channel to learn about hunting, but on their personal no, social media. Um, so it was a cool conversation to hear about you know, what their plans are and, and what ways they see being able to use their platform to help further this mission. And, and, and they're you know, very much aware of the importance of tone in, in their own content. So. Yeah, and they do. They're all Texas boys, or at least some of them are, right? Yeah. No, I think they all are. Think, yeah. yeah. You have uh, our buddy Jesse Griffiths in here. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse's great, and it was cool to give him a platform to talk about his hog obsession. And uh, he's got <laughs> he talked new... about it on this podcast. I yeah. Could I could listen to him talk about. Yeah. He has a forthcoming. Uh, it's like a cookbook. More it's like a, a, it's a second. So it's a, a sequel to a field. Yeah. And I think it. I don't know if it has the same name. But it's much more focused on hogs. Yeah, and that's all he yeah, told that's me. That's how he explained so, it to me. Like, yeah, this is, I'm doing a book about feral hogs. Yeah, which is awesome. I'm. Uh, you have Simon Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Talk about. I don't think a lot of people know who Simon is. Talk about your he's relationship kind of with a, Simon. He's kind of a dark horse. Um, so Simon is the great great grandson of Tr. And I met Simon at Dallas Safari Club probably five years ago. And um, I remember he was ta- he's he's working on a book currently. I believe Andy Anderson's shooting the book, and it's about hunting's role in conservation in North America, broken into different regions. And uh, and and I was having a conversation with him at Michelle Montiakis's booth. My friend from Tanzania I had no idea who he was. I was like, oh well, I'd love to contribute to the book if you're looking for additional photos. And he's like, yeah, yeah. He gave me his card and walked away. And I look at the card and it says from the office of Simon Roosevelt and Allison Rockefeller. And I was like, holy oh. shit. And I look over and Michelle is like, you have some luck, my friend. 
So anyways, I ended up going on a couple hunts with him, photographing, and this was way before we launched Modern Huntsman. So from the beginning, he's been my main advisor. And uh, in terms of understanding the landscape and the history, and Simon, you know, is old enough that he's, you know, been part of that, but he thinks much more progressively. And so when he saw what we were doing, he said, I really believe that this is something that could work. I would like to do whatever I can to help you. Uh, and so he's been very instrumental in helping me introduce, introduce me to people, but then also give me feedback often, which is very harsh yeah. uh, about, you know, what we're doing. And so, um, yeah, he's been invaluable. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote a pretty strong piece in this one. It goes for the throat. I mean, he, he goes into the long range and the can hunting and all of that. I mean, he, Does he it, throws it's, down. It's called defining modern hunting. Yeah. So we'll look forward to that when you, yeah. when you get in there. That's awesome, man. Yeah, like I said, you have guys like Max Lowe in here. I think that's a huge deal. Chris yeah. Burkhard yeah. in here. Explain who Chris is. Yeah, People so need to know that. Chris, yeah, Chris is a um, pretty famous or prolific outdoor photographer. Does a lot of work for you know surf surf brands and, mm-hmm. and REI and and, uh, and Patagonia. And, and I think he has three million something Instagram followers. Uh, and uh, and Charles is a good friend of his, and and so he's one of those guys. I believe he's a vegetarian, and he definitely doesn't hunt. But he believes that you know preserving wild places and wild things are more important than whether you're holding a rod or a rock climbing rope. So he's con- he's you know agreed to be a contributor the last two issues, and um, you know help us promote in a little bit of way, which which is amazing. Um, and so they had a story about their work in Iceland, and it's a it's a really cool story about how Iceland was the number one geothermal, uh, or no, they were they were using hydro dams from these glacial rivers for aluminum production mm. and then that massive and i cannot pronounce the name of the volcano the eruption in like what was that 2014 or whatever massive volcanic eruption that disrupted like 50 percent of the world's air traffic and that at that point they shifted um their that's when tourism started to become big and people wanted to come see these amazing places and that success. So now that's the number one resource in Iceland is tourism. So that country realized, you know what, maybe we shouldn't destroy our glacial rivers by doing aluminum production that we should support it. And so they're about to put in place uh, an ordinance that would make 40% of the island a national park. Wow. And, and so that's kind of what Chris is bringing attention to. And, um, and then, you know, we've got Gunnar from Iceland, who's a traditional Icelandic Arctic fox hunter. Yeah, let's, let's, this guy, I love this guy. Oh my guy. God. This For is my many, favorite story by far. Many reasons. Yeah. And because if you just posted a picture of this feller, I'll try to flip He looks straight them. out of the show Vikings. Yeah. But also, I think there's like, there's hipsters that might also dress like this. So if you look at this, you're like, oh, look at this guy. Yeah. What a loser. But then you start to read about him, like, this dude could, this, he, this is a man he, um, among men. So he's a, th- I can't remember if it's third or fourth generation Icelandic Arctic fox hunter. So his grandfather taught him how to hunt and he's got this massive red beard and he wears the knit sweaters and the seal fur boots. And this is, this is real. This isn't like a fashion show. And he wrote this amazing story. It's my, definitely my favorite one in the issue about the history of when the Vikings first landed in Iceland, they had to compete with the Arctic fox for the same food source. 
And so over time, you know, and a lot of it has to do with the eider, eider birds, right, and which are endangered. Mm. And, uh, or that they were preying on the livestock, which in Iceland, like if you don't have your livestock in the winter, you're done for. And that has evolved over time to a government-sponsored fox management program. So he is professionally hired by the Icelandic government. He gets paid per tail to protect these eider bird settlements. So he literally camps out and snipes these foxes to keep the balance of wildlife. And, you know, it's something that's controversial because people love Arctic foxes. But if you go to Sweden and Norway, the Arctic fox is endangered because mm. the red fox preys on those. So he goes over there and shoots red foxes. So he's got this like amazing relationship and, and the, the detail and the, the depth of the relationship that he has with the landscape and the animals is unbelievable. And it's like, you talk about a guy coming from the land and living a life of the land. It's not any better than this. And, yeah, he, and, and he's, he's intelligent, he's articulate, he's a talented photographer. His wife's a hunter. They're already teaching their daughter about the ways of their life. And um, this is one of those things where it's 100% it's tied up in the cultural traditions. I was about to say exactly yeah. that. You yeah. know, it's sometimes clear, and I enjoy those folks the most. Yeah. You know? And I've run into them, had them some on this show. Yeah. It's like that hunting is, they just emote this cultural yeah. sensitivity to who they are, what mm-hmm. they do, hunting is that. Dushan talks about that, yeah. about his native country. Yeah. Um, other folks like Wyman Menzer and and Charles Rowdy, people that have been on this show that that have it. Just it, it just comes out of them. They breathe yeah. it. It is them. Yeah. And so because it is them, it's part of the culture that they came up in. And, yeah. And that that can be powerful. And I'm sure this. Uh, this can't wait to read it. I'm sure it's powerful as well. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. You, sh- you should uh, you should have him on sometime. Oh yeah, hook yeah. me up. I'd love, I to, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to talk I to will. that dude. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tyler. Um, and go go look at Modern Huntsman Volume Three. There are two other volumes that are, I'm sure, still available. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, I appreciate appreciate your honesty and your openness about what you do and what you feel about the, your mission with this book. I think it's admirable. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. All right, brother. Cheers. See ya. I guess I grew up on an older road. A pedal to the metal always That's it. That's all. Episode number 68 in the books. It was a good one. It's always a conversation. This conversation we've had a lot on this podcast. Uh, it's really kind of the reason I started this podcast. How, what's, you know, what's our why for hunting? How do we communicate that why? How do we talk about our motivations? How do we talk about the narrative uh, to, the, to the broader public it's it's something that we'll continue to talk about here i try not to overdo it in recent podcasts we we have talked about a lot of varied subjects but it's always fun to return to this because it really is the thing that i think we could talk about forever so thank you to tyler sharp go pick up modern huntsman volume three modernhuntsman.com and thank you to anthony Ducata, my uh, new boss hopefully he sticks around his family moves to montana you're gonna hear a lot from him in the coming weeks uh, what else do we got? What else? Oh, um, go to the Meat Eater store. You should do that all the time, every day that you can. There's a lot of stuff there. There is our, I really want uh, to highlight our new shirt, a relatively new shirt. It's been out for about a month or so. Our Aldo Leopold shirt. Uh, it's, it says Aldo freaking Leopold on it. And it says that because he's a badass and he's one of the fathers of conservation. He's written some of the seminal works in our world. And you're going to be walking around with a illustrated picture of Aldo on your shirt. People are going to ask you, 
who's that? And you're going to get to tell them. So you're going to be a messenger for that man and his great works that have inspired all of us. So go to TheMediator.com, click on Shop, and then go find that tea. And there's some other stuff there. There's the Hunting Collective Yeti Tumblr. There is uh, the Pro Nuance Anti-Bullshit T-shirt. There are some other logoed hoodies and hats and things like that there that I think are pretty cool. I hope you go check out and pick up. And what else? Oh, there's other stuff at this store. You're always going to want to go there and check those things out. But I also wanted to address before we get out of here um, the great feedback we got on last week's episode, number 67, on the Llama Larens. The Llama Larens are a subsistence hunting tribe on a small island in Indonesia. I've, I've got dozens of emails here from people that really like that episode and really like Doug Bach Clark. A lot of you had questions about his experience. I've sent some of those over to Doug, and hopefully he can get back to us, and, and we'll cover that on future podcasts, or I'll just email you guys back and it, with his answers. So thanks for listening to that episode. We're going to leave you on this episode, number 68, leave you with some listener feedback, and then old number seven. So enjoy. See you next time. Hey, this is Andrea just calling to give some of my feedback. Um, first off, I loved the interview with uh, Charles Rodney. Um, such a cool guy, such a cool story. Uh, I love small game hunting. I love seeing different types of people and um, how they hunt and what they do and what their heritage is. I mean, um, it's just so cool to see something uh, varying from the status quo and to see like an alternative version of, of uh, American hist- history, heritage, hunting. So that was a real treat, and, and I felt like I was there with you guys, and what a great interview. So thank you for doing that. Um, in in junction with that interview, you guys were talking about um, people of color in the hunting world and, and how there aren't a lot of them and how uh, we want more. And, and you also sort of tiptoed around it while you are doing it because people had such adverse reactions to it. And um, I think maybe we could investigate a little bit why why do people have such knee-jerk reaction to the mere mention of people of color in the hunting and, and how they're, you know, I mean, anyone with two eyes can see what the hunting world is. Come on, it's white men, you know, and, and why is that? It hasn't, you know, white men didn't invent hunting. Um, so why don't people of color have access or why aren't they welcomed into spaces um, you know, why don't they have a, as rich of a heritage of hunting as, you know, the average white man might, you know? Um, I think it's it's something to investigate, and, and I think just the emotions behind it are something to investigate. I would encourage people to ask themselves, why does it make them mad, you know? Uh, why? 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 I, I'm really, truly baffled and, and shocked and honestly appalled <laughs> I, they say don't read the comment section and I, and I honestly wish I wouldn't have had read it but what's done is done so I'd love to hear more about it uh, thanks bye hey Ben this is Nate Schneck from western Minnesota calling in hey I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your podcast um, really appreciating all the turkey content that you put out this spring I am an adult onset turkey hunter I've uh, been hunting a lot of other stuff, mostly whitetail deer, since I was a kid. This is was my first spring turkey hunting. I uh, went out with the DNR program and NWTF kind of joint program. Uh, got on a bird within 30 minutes of getting out my first morning and, and was able to get a really nice time. 
and I am hooked. Uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Keep it rolling. I wouldn't be opposed to more turkey talk during the summer. Thanks, man. Thank you, Jack Daniels. Oh, number seven. Tennessee whiskey got me drinking in heaven. And an angel start to look good to me. They're going to have to deport me to the fiery deep. Oh, to the fiery deep. Drinking in the fiery deep. Oh, to the fiery Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them yanni on the other hand one of my main turkey hunting buddies he loves box calls and what's funny is i'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey so it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.